0: You know, normally, I don't talk about horror movies from the pulpit. I think it's kind of bad form uh, for a preacher to talk about horror movies, but I'm just going to go ahead and break my own rule this morning because this one horror movie really ties in with what we're going to be talking about today. And I kind of wonder if you've seen this horror movie. It's, It's a classic. It's got one of the most horrific scenes ever produced for film in this movie. Uh, It scarred me growing up. I can't believe my parents let me watch this. I'm curious if you've seen this movie too. Uh, Pinocchio. Some of you were like, if he talks about the grudge, I'm out of (laughs) here. Pinocchio, you know what I'm talking about. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. That absolutely horrendous scene where all the little boys turn into donkeys. It is Terrifying! I just watched it again the other night in prep for this message. It is horrific. And then they ship them off to the salt mines? That's terrible. But if you remember that movie, how does Pinocchio find himself in this situation? It's because he, he allows himself to get immersed among people who do not care about what is good. They only care about having a good time. They don't care about what's good for Pinocchio. They just want to have a good time in and of themselves. And that scene, where those little boys realize they're in a world of hurt, and they start transforming into—I mean, it, it is scarring. Wes Craven, Alfred Hitchcock, you got nothing on Walt Disney. <laughs> and all my time um, in life and in ministry, working with people, I can't say this scientifically just my, my observation and my experience, the greatest influence on a person's life is who they allow in their life. And the Bible has this great tension that we are to live into, that we are to have the right people in our life. This is one of the great life lessons of the Bible. And over the next number of weeks, we are going to be walking through the book of Titus together. I'm going to encourage you to turn there now. Today we're going to be talking about having the right people in your life. This is a short little sermon series, just three weeks as we close out the summer and look to the fall. Three chapters, of the book of Titus, three messages, each going to be looking at a profound life lesson that, that Paul, who wrote to Titus, he draws from as he encourages and equips Titus with the ministry that's before him. So as you're turning there, just some context real quick. Paul, the apostle Paul, has this protege named Titus. And Paul and Titus, they do missions and ministry together. And at some point, they find themselves at a place called Crete. We'll talk about that place in just a moment. And they're doing ministry on Crete, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're starting churches. But at some point, Paul leaves Titus there, and Paul leaves. And then sometime later, he writes back to Titus with some further instruction about forming the church and some life lessons and how to live like a Christian. and these are what we're going to be looking at over the next number of weeks. But this first one is really an, we call this an occasional letter. I mean, Paul wrote for an occasion. There was something he's responding to. He's giving Titus instructions on planting churches. But to do this, he, he draws from God's plan for us. And the first chapter really outlines what type of man should be leading churches. And even as I just said church, I'm afraid some of you, you automatically thought of like the legal entity of a church, the nonprofit status of a church. And you have to remember when when Paul and the New Testament talk about the church, they're not talking about the sticks and bricks and the nonprofit status of an organization. They're talking about us, the people. And God wants us as his people to have certain people in our lives that will oversee us, that care for us, that shepherd us. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, having those right people in our lives. So hopefully you are to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through the rest of the chapter. Again, if you are new to Peace Church, we know that summertime we have a lot of people checking us out. Welcome if you are just visiting with us. Um, I really encourage everyone to make sure you've got this thing open on your lap. I want you to follow along. I don't want you just to hear it. I also want you to read it and see it for yourselves. Titus chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 5 through the rest of the chapter. It will be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. But either way, would you hear the word of the Lord? Paul writes to Titus and he says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, meaning those of the Jewish persuasion. says, verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, again a Cretan is just someone who was from Crete, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Disobedient and unfit for any good work. Strong words, let's pray and then we'll get to it. Father God, we thank you that you have ordered the heavens at your command and you also have an order for your church and for our lives, which is for our good. So, Lord, I ask here and now that you would give us by the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit clarity on the life lesson that you have for us here and now. And we pray these things in the most precious, perfect, and powerful name there is. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So if you like outlines, let me just give you the outline of where we're going today. This is kind of where we're going to be walking through our text. Having the right people in your life. We're first going to look at people who will shepherd you in the faith. Then we're going to talk about people who will support you in the truth. Then we're going to talk about people who will set a godly example for you. Now let me just say this, are there many people who could do these things? Yes. But the good book here today points to one specific type of person, and that is the elders of the church. So while you may have people in your life who do these things, not least of which should be the elders of this church or whatever church you are a part of. This is the entire focus of Titus chapter 1. Who should be an elder? Because not just anybody who wants to do this gets to do this. They need to fulfill certain godly characteristics. But I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm pretty sure you probably know this, finding godly men to do this is hard. It's hard to do this. It's hard to find godly men who fulfill these qualities and who are willing to serve. And not to mention, Titus has to do this on Crete. Let's talk about Crete for a second here. Uh, In the Mediterranean Sea, just south Of Greece, still around today. But let me lay the context for you back 2,000 years ago. See, Crete was a place that was absolutely bathed in pagan mythology. In Greek mythology, in fact, it was said that Zeus himself was born on the island of Crete. And Cretans had high pride for that, knowing that Zeus himself was a Cretan. If you know Greek mythology, then you, you probably know the story of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. That was based on Crete. This was a place, a place absolutely bathed in pagan mythology and pagan pride. Judeo-Christian values were non-existent on this island. In fact, the term Cretan, a person who is from Crete, that term was synonymous in the ancient world with a liar. If you know someone who is a liar or who lies, you'd call them a Cretan whether or not they were actually from Crete. It was a very rough place. It was notoriously rough. And Paul even affirms this and acknowledges this to Titus. He says in verse 10, he says, There are many who are insubordinate there. They're empty talkers and they're deceivers. Even a, even a Cretan, a prophet of their own, speaking of the poet Epimenides from about 500 years before that, even a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts and they're lazy gluttons. Paul says this testimony is true. Paul affirms this place has a very bad reputation. It would kind of be like if I had one of our interns here at Peace Church, if I said to them, hey, there's a Hell's Angel convention happening at a drug house at 2.30 in the morning. I want you to go there. I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to start a church and find some of those guys to lead that church. I'm sure that intern and Titus would are kind of like, you go do it. This is a rough place. But yet God knows there are men to be raised up to do this job. This is important to the heart of God as he crafts and builds his church. Again, the church meaning us, his people. Because the people of God, you and me, we are to have righteous men identified as elders in our churches and in our lives. Let me ask you right now, like, do you have a man like that, a leader like that, identified in your life? Can you identify him? Can you picture his face? These are not just meant to be people who meet in a boardroom once a month. These are meant to be people who are actually part of the life of the church, and because they're part of the life of the church, they should be part of your life. This is so important that Paul writes to Titus and he says this. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order to finish planting the churches and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is the life lesson for us. We need to have the right people in our lives. I think the first life lesson we see from this is that we need to have people who will shepherd you in the faith because that's what an elder is to do. They are to shepherd us in the faith. As a a shepherd oversees a flock, the elder is to oversee the church. We're going to talk about that in a second. They are to care for God's church. And listen here. Did you see what he says? Appoint elders in every town. These are not to be people that you admire from afar or that you just listen to on podcasts. These are meant to be local men raised up from within the community, from within the church to oversee, lead, and guide, and love the church. Paul says that not just anyone can be an elder, but men who meet specific qualities. So let's walk through Pretty rapid firely. Let's walk, the, walk through the qualities that Paul lays out for the type of man who gets to oversee God's church. He says if anyone is above reproach, above reproach simply just means that they live such a quality life that they can't even be accused of wrongdoing. They're so upstanding that you've got nothing on them that they pursue a quiet, humble life living for the Lord That they are the husband of one wife, or as it would have said literally in the Greek, they are a one-woman man. Meaning that they have eyes only for their wife. They're not a flirt. They're not flirtatious. They're not out there rubbing shoulders with other girls. They're focusing on their wife, loving her, building her up, protecting her, providing for her, encouraging her, supporting her. And here's why I think this is so important. Because if a man's going to be in charge of overseeing Christ's bride, he better be doing a good job of loving his own bride first. And then he says, Paul says, that, uh, a one-woman man and that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. L- let, let's camp out on this one for a second. I don't think Paul is saying here that you have perfectly well-behaved little kids who can recite the Heidelberg Catechism. I think he's saying here that this is a man who in Intentionally raises his kids in the knowledge of the Lord and he has his home in order. He's raising his kids right. Now, theologians and commentators will, will put that Paul is more than likely specifically referring to children in the home. The word here for child or children has the connotation of an inhabitant, meaning someone who is under the roof, meaning If a man raises a child in the knowledge of the Lord and that person grows up to become an adult and they themselves leave the faith, I don't think that necessarily disqualifies a man from eldership. But while the kids are in the home, he's raising them in the knowledge of the home and he has order established in his house. Not that he's an authoritarian, don't take what I said to the extreme, but that he has a loving order in his house that he has control. And I think there's an important reason behind this. Because a man can't come and bring order to his church if there's not order first in his own house. I think this is why it's so important that Paul focuses on what's going on in this man's personal life. Because what you have in your personal life in a a lot of ways is going to be reflective in your public life. So don't think you can come and bring order to God's house if you don't have order in your own house first. Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, not that they're perfect, but that they're being raised, they're being raised right. He goes on to say for an overseer, so here's here's some of the job description. The elders are to oversee the church. Not that they lead every aspect or a part of the minutia of every single thing that happens, but they oversee. They make sure that the church is generally heading in the right direction. That they're loving and praying for the people of the church. That they're making sure that sound doctrine is being taught. That they're caring for and loving. That they are God's stewards. Now this is an important term that I think is lost on our modern ears. For the ancient ear, 2,000 years ago, A steward was a very important and specific person. Now, the master of a household, he would have a steward who would manage the affairs of the house. So the steward of a household would, would literally have the keys to the house. They'd be able to hire and fire workers. They were in control of the checkbook. This is a person who literally had control over the house. And so an elder, as God's steward, this person would physically and spiritually have the keys to the church. This is why our elders are the ones who are in charge of our budget. This is why our elders are the ones who are in charge of church discipline. This is why our elders are the ones who can, in a sense, hire and fire me. Please don't. (laughs) So they're an overseer and they're God's steward. And again, Paul says they must be above reproach. He wants to make sure that these are men of integrity. A men who are pursuing the Lord. He doesn't ask for famous men. He doesn't ask for influencers. He asks for men of integrity. They must be above reproach. This man must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. Doesn't mean they can't enjoy a glass of wine. Just means they shouldn't be drinking the whole bottle in one sitting. Not a drunkard. They're not violent. They're not greedy for gain. But they're hospitable. Now this word hospitable in the ancient language, in the original language, um, hospitable was the combination of the word friend and the word stranger. Meaning this man is kind to outsiders, kind to strangers. He's hospitable. He loves what is good in this world. He is self-controlled. He is upright. He's holy. Now this word holy isn't the, isn't the typical word we see in the New Testament for holy. This is actually a, a more rare word. The word that we typically see has to do with sanctification but this word has to do more with the connotation of like devotion. He is devoted to his church. He is devoted to worshiping God. He is devoted. He's actively involved so much so that he is seen as set apart from the community for how much he loves and is invested in his church. And he's disciplined. He's disciplined because you can't bring order to God's house if you don't have order in your own house and that takes discipline. To see it happen. So these are men who will shepherd you in the faith because they are living it out so intently. So let's just stop here for a second and let me just address a question I'm sure some of you are probably asking. Does it have to be a man? Can't a woman fulfill these qualities yeah, 100% a woman can fulfill these qualities, but I don't see in this text where God is allowing that role to be open to women. And at Peace Church, that's where we land when we read the scriptures, that we think that the role of the elder is reserved only for godly men. Now, let me clarify something here, real quick, because I know this can be a hard topic for people. So, I want to clarify something, and I want to clean up some language that I often hear get thrown around. I think it is very sloppy, very misleading, and very misguided to say that only men can be elders. I don't find that phrase in the New Testament. I think that is a very base, rope beyond the essence of what the Bible's teaching phrase to say only men can be elders. I think the more intelligent, honorable way that hits at the heart of what the Bible is trying to teach us is that the role of elder is reserved only for godly men. And when I look at the what it takes to be an elder, when I look at these list of qualifications, who would have a problem with a man serving in this role? I mean, isn't that more important than what their gender is? Now, that's not to say that gender is not important, because God is very clear. He refer, it's, This is only masculine language. It is a one-woman man. I think when you look at the other qualifications in other areas, such as in the other pastoral letters, the thrust of the New Testament is that the role of elder is reserved only for godly men. We're we're not here to seek division over that. We just want to be clear on we where we as a church where we stand on that. We do believe that women have all the gifts that are available to men. I I want to see women being fulfilled in their callings as as who God has called them and how he has equipped them and gifted them. We want to see women doing great things. We have no problem hiring women for full-time employment here at Peace, but when we talk about the role of the elder At Peace Church we believe when we read the New Testament with our conviction with what we see that that role is reserved only for godly men who meet these qualities. I don't want want members of Peace Church going around saying only men can be elders. Again, I think that's a sloppy, misguided, uncharitable way to say what an elder is and what God is calling in these roles. Okay, I'll get off the soapbox. Again, When I read what the Bible expects of the men called to this role, I just wonder who would have a problem with this. Aren't these the type of men that we want in our lives? That we want leading our churches? But I think the problem is is that the church, not necessarily Peace Church, but I think the American church for a long time is that we haven't held to this standard and it's led to immense confusion. We haven't let men who have these qualities serve. We let men serve for other reasons like their buddy-buddy with the pastor or maybe they give a lot of money to the church or maybe they're a good communicator or maybe they're a savvy business leader. Not that any of those things are bad in and of themselves, but those aren't the boxes we seek to check when we discern who God is calling to be an elder. It is godly men who seek Jesus with their own heart in their own home first who love the Lord, who love the word, and who love this church. That's who we want to see raised to this. So, I want men like this in my life. I want men like this overseeing our church because I want men like this shepherding you. Now, these are also the men I want to learn from. But back to verse 9. He goes on to say, like, he must hold firm, he must hold firm to the word, to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many out there who are insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Again, that means like those who are teaching uh, Jewish myths. He so says they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He goes on to say, one of the Cretans. And own Cretans talks about how terrible these people are. Paul says, this testimony is true, but look at the end of verse 13. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. These are men who should have conviction and clarity on the truth and the courage to defend it. I'm going to say it again. These are men who should have conviction and clarity on the truth and the courage to defend it. These are not just to be kind, gentlemen. I want kind, gentlemen on there. But I want men with courage to defend the truth in this world. Men who stand on the truth and for the truth. So let me, let me explain what I mean by this next point. I think we need to have men who support you in the truth when we talk about the right people in our lives, we want those who support you in the truth. See, Paul is telling Titus that there's no shortage of people out there who will enter our lives, disrupt our teachings, infect our families, disrupt entire lives, rather than people who will support us. But here's where I think we get something wrong. Let me clarify. I think in our culture, we think that to be supported means that you always side with me. If you always side with me, then you are supporting me. If you always sanctify my desires and baptize my beliefs, well, therefore, you're supporting me. I don't think that's the biblical notion of support. To be supported doesn't mean to be sided with. I think what we're seeing here is that it means to walk alongside you and to seek to keep you on the side of truth, to support you so that you're always in the company of the light and on solid ground. But There are people in our lives who enter our lives who don't seek to support us in the truth. Again, they seek to sanctify our desires and baptize our beliefs. And all the while, they're actually upsetting our souls and keeping them from what God would truly have for us. And Paul says that these people, they're not to be received. They're to be rebuked. Why do we rebuke them? So that they can know how terrible of a people they are? Absolutely not. We rebuke so that, as verse 13 says, so that they may be sound in the faith. So that they would know the truth of the gospel. And let me say this to everybody. How you receive righteous rebuke says a lot about where you are in your maturity and your spirituality. Can you receive righteous rebuke without getting upset? Without getting prideful? Can you receive righteous rebuke and be open to the Spirit and what he may have to say to you? And if you tell me, I've never been rebuked. No one's ever actually rebuked me. You may not have the right people in your life. Righteous rebuke is one of the ways that we demonstrate love and keep each other on the straight and narrow path. So a few years back, back in my youth ministry days, I was speaking at this week-long youth gathering in Minneapolis. The, uh, the friend of, uh, I have a friend of mine who was the organizer of this event, and he called me to be the speaker. So I went to Minneapolis for the entire week. Every single night, I was to give a teaching to these uh, teenagers. I don't know a couple, hun- a couple hundred of them there or something. And the first two nights, I'll just be honest with you, like the first two nights, it was like preaching to a stone wall. Just dead. They are not receiving, at least it didn't feel like they were receiving anything. And I'm passionately trying to tell them about the truth of God's word and what God has for them is better than what the world has for them, that Jesus loves them more than anybody else. And I'm just trying to preach God's truth to them, and it just feels like they're just like this the whole entire time. And by the end of the second night, I'm like, I'm so over this. Like, those kids will connect with me. So the third night, I went on full-on entertainment comedy mode. And I had them roaring laughing. And I'm cracking jokes, and I'm making fun of famous people, and they're just dying laughing. And I'm just loving it. And I'm like, finally, I'm making a connection with them. So I get done. I get done uh, with that night's talk. And the organizer of the, of the event, who's a, who's a uh, Christian brother of mine, who called me to this event, he, he comes to me. And he says, hey, come here for a minute. So we go around the corner, and uh, he goes, what was that? And I knew exactly what he was talking about. I did. I knew exactly what he was talking about. I was like, dude, come on, man. Like, this is a hard crowd. Like, I just, I wanted to make a connection with them. And he said, brother, I love you, but I did not bring you here so that you could make a connection with them. I brought you here so that you could help them make a connection with the truth. He said, I know that it feels like a hard crowd, but I'm going to tell you right now, brother. He's like, the small group times afterwards are rich because you're giving them truth and you're hitting them with Jesus and it's beautiful and they are responding. It's like, you need to keep fighting the good fight. Don't succumb to low-hanging fruit. And I tell you, like, do you think I enjoyed that conversation? Uh, seriously, do you think I enjoyed that conversation? No. No, I didn't. I was sick to my stomach. For the entire night, I felt like a failure. I I went back on everything I knew that I I should have done, and I got called out for it, and I went to sleep sick to my stomach. But you know what? The Spirit worked through that. It is one of the most important conversations I've ever had in my entire life. He loved me enough not to allow me to keep walking in the path of error. He loved me enough to pull me out sent me back on the right path, no matter how hard of a conversation that was. He loved me. Listen to me. His rebuke for me was actually support for me with what I should have been doing. He was not trying to demean me. He was encouraging me to do what was right. That is true support. That is the type of people that you need to have in your life. People who love you enough to righteously rebuke you when and if you need it. And if you've never been righteously rebuked, I'm here to tell you right now, you may not have the right people in your life or you haven't built that trust with them and communicated to them that they can do that for you. We all need it. Jesus rebuked his own disciples. We need to receive that from time to time. We need people Who will support us, even if it means being rebuked? The other thing my friend did for me that night is he set, he set the godly example for me. And you need men, people, but specifically elders in your life who will set the godly example for you. Paul writes this in verse fifteen. It's one of the more cryptic things we see in the New Testament. He says, "To the pure, all things are pure." Now, what what does he mean here? "To the pure, all things are pure." Well, let me explain this for a moment. To be pure, in a sense, is to be made new by Jesus, to be made holy. That when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, by the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit, he makes us new, that we are made pure. So that for those of us who are in Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our old sin that's been washed away in Jesus. When we are in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees something right. He sees something pure. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect on this side of eternity. But it means that God is doing a work in us. When he looks at us, he sees something beautiful. He sees something right. But being pure, with all things being pure to us, that doesn't mean we can now just go and engage in any old sin because, well, to the pure, all things are pure. No, no, no. To be pure in Christ means now that we have pure motives Pure ambitions. I want to read to you um, a quick little paragraph that I think really encapsulates what this means in a nice, succinct way. Let me me read it for you. It means that we are able to enjoy God's good gifts in the manner that God intended. Having pure hearts, we will want to use the things according to God's word. And when we do, we're able to enjoy them without sin. I think that's what Paul's getting at when he talks about to the pure, all things are pure. Meaning that we can look at Instagram without getting jealous. We can have a glass of wine without wanting to drink the whole bottle. We can be satisfied with less if that means living within our means. It means that we can enjoy our old age without longing for yesteryear. It means that for those who are in Christ, we can enjoy the things that God has given us in the way that God has intended. And we need people in our lives who set this godly example for us. And elders are to be men in our lives who do this for us. And while those are the ones that we should have in our lives, Paul tells us to watch out for another type of person. The type that profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. He says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So the, 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 the common term here that Paul is referring to is a Christian atheist. A person who says they are a Christian but lives like God doesn't exist. And Paul does not have kind words for these guys. In fact he's kind of he's kind of mean tweeting them. They are detestable. <laughs> disobedient unfit hashtag said But is Paul being mean? No, I don't think Paul's being mean. I think Paul is ruthlessly guarding what it means to be a Christian. Christians are not the ones who claim that there's a God but then live like he doesn't exist. That's not who we are. That's not what God has called us to. Paul is saying, if if you're going to live like God doesn't exist, at least stop calling yourself a Christian because you are unfit. He is guarding what it means to be a Christian. And so should elders. And so should elders. So church, can you name the people in your life who are shepherding you in the faith, supporting you in the truth, who are setting a good example for you? If you can't name them, then I wonder who do you have in your life? And you may not have the right people in your life. At Peace Church, church, our membership, when you become a member, uh, you kind of by default become part of a zone. And our elder board, each of the elders on our elder board, they're in charge of a different zone to care for and to love. And if you don't know what zone you are in, that's okay. When you head out here, if you are a member of Peace Church, when you head out here, over by the mailboxes, we have this, this board here. and It has a list of our elders and their zones. You just, it's by your last name. You can go and look to see who your zone elder is, and there's also their email. Their email's at the bottom of that. If you don't know who your zone elder is, and if you haven't made contact with them, here is your one to-do list, your one to-do action item. I want you to find out who your zone elder is and email them this week and make contact. Now, don't worry. I've already prepped our elders, knowing they're going to get a flood of emails this week. They're ready for it, and they're happy to receive it. Right, elders? Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> My elder is Hal Eisenhoff. That's my, he's, he's the head of, of, of my zone. And I know that I can call on him for prayer or if I have need or if I just need a, uh, a wise voice in my life. And I want you to know who that is too. This is why we think membership is so important at peace. See, when you become a member, what you're doing is you're telling our elders that you want to be cared for, that you want to be shepherded, that you are committed to this church. And so our elders then know who is actually part of their zone. So, Back to Pinocchio and close this up. (laughs) Who is this little guy? Yeah. I can't believe your parents let you watch this. (laughs) Jiminy Cricket. Uh, So what part in Pinocchio's life does Jiminy Cricket play? Starts with a C. His conscience, right? What is a conscience? It, it, It tells him right and wrong. It keeps him where he should be helps him to make the right decision, right? You could almost say that Jimny is kind of like his elder. Present in his life, keeping him on the path, the right path. And so today, I want you to really consider who are the people in your life? And are they shepherding you, supporting you, and setting the right example for you? But here's what I want to leave you with. While I want you to know Peace Church, who your zone elder is, and I want you to have a contact with them. That's not the primary person I want you to walk away knowing today. There is someone else that I want you to know, and this person will not only shepherd you, will not only support you in the truth, he's not only the quintessential godly example, he's also saved you. Our chief elder and our chief pastor, Jesus Christ, If there's one person I want you to walk away knowing, it's him. See, God wants us to have the right people in our life, so he sent the right person, his son, to come to earth, to live the life that we will fall short of living. And because we fall short, we have sin in our life, and that sin needs to be held to account. That sin needs to be punished. But we didn't take the punishment for that. Jesus, who lived the life that we should have lived, he also dies the death that we should have died. That should have been us up there on the cross. But our chief elder laid down his life for us. And after he paid the penalty for our sin and he triumphed over Satan's sin and death and he rose from the grave, the last thing he said to his disciples and the thing he says to us, he says, Surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to fill and fuel and guide this church. And he has set elders as stewards over this church so that we could have a family, so that we could have the right people in our life, and so that we would have a company of believers caring for us and caring for each other as we long for the return of Christ. See, we don't have just a religion, we have a relationship with Jesus. We don't have a God who's distant, we don't have a prophet who's dead. We have a God and a Savior who is alive and wants to be present with us. And that's who I want you to know firstly. But if you know him, then I want you to get to know your elder. And I want you to truly consider who are the people in your life and do you have the right people? The people who will shepherd you, support you, and set a godly example for you. And I pray that if not now, soon, you could be that example for someone else life lesson we learned today is have the right people in your life, but it starts with Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for those you've placed in our lives, for the men and women who do care for us, who do set the example for us. Father, I want to say thank you for the elders of this church who shepherd this church, who support this church, who set the example for this church, who oversee this church. Father, I pray your spirit fills and fuels those men that they would remain holy before you. Protect them. Father, I pray that we as a church, we'd allow them to speak into our lives. Father, that we would be able to do the same for each other. Thank you for the family of the church. Thank you for the stewards of the elders that you placed over this. And thank you for King Jesus, who sits on the throne. Father, I pray here and now, Lord, is that we respond in worship to you. Father, I pray that we would do that not worshiping a God who is distant, but a God who is present. And so, Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. And everyone said, amen and amen. Would you please stand and let's worship together.